Now, Melissa, can I just ask you a couple of questions? For those who didn't meet sure. Melissa last semester, just so you don't jump up here cold. Sure. Would you just like to give us a bit of your history? So you've been in, you're a graduate from, are you a graduate from Trinity or a, did you just go to uh, I did my formation at Trinity, but I did my studies through Uniting College of Leadership and Theology in South Australia because they were the only people at the time who had a distance program. Okay. And I needed distance because I was living on the Gold Coast and already in full-time ministry down there. So okay. I needed something that I could do between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Yes. And Trinity wasn't open then, but UCLT so was. You were a senior minister at... No, I was executive, executive minister. minister. Yeah. And you did your study full-time, oh, part-time. Part-time, part-time, yeah, yeah, yeah. And raised a couple of kids and yeah. a husband and, you know. <laughs> did you ever find anything really challenging? So one of the things <laughs> we like to address here when we... Apart from the practical sort of uh, considerations of doing that, have you found it... Um, Theologically, were you disturbed very much as you studied? Or... Do you know, the thing about my theological studies was it was actually so affirming and comforting because I felt like I was one of these people who didn't... You know, it seemed to me that I spent a lot of time in churches and small groups where people were very black and white. You know, they'd, they'd read something and they'd say, well, that's it, and, you know... And I'm like, oh, I, I just couldn't feel that way about the text yeah. um, and... Uh, I, I, I hated this idea that you would just pick something out and I think, well, what about what it says, you know, a few chapters over and what about what it says in the New Testament? And, you know, <coughs> it just seemed to me that, that um, uh, you know, there was, th that there was this whole mosaic, I guess, if you like, um, and you had to put all of the pieces together to be able to see the full picture and I think theological studies helped me do that. Mm. It just gave me so much, you know, it helped me just put all the little pieces into the mosaic. N not that that mosaic is ever complete, I don't think, because mm. I think, you know, God's work and God's revealing to us is always ongoing. So, um, but it, it helped me to pick up all the little pieces that seem to be swirling around in my mind and fit it into this beautiful um, picture um, and and has allowed me given me a foundation to continue to do that I think yeah and then with it do you draw much on your theological study in your current role so Melissa yeah. is chief operating officer yeah. of the Bible Society so yeah. yeah yeah you do I do I do well because you know we're the Bible people so you yeah. know everything we do has to be shaped and by by scripture you know so um, why are we doing this and why are we doing it this way if that's not what scripture would lead us to? So, but I'm, I'm not an academic theologian at all. I'm, I'm, I'm completely a pastoral theologian. Um, so that, um, that, I guess that informs everything that I do. It, in, it informs the mission projects that we choose. So um, Bible Society you know, is, is, um, works right here in Australia, but we also have work right around the world, you know, somewhere up to 40 projects at any one time in any given year, right around the world, in very difficult parts of the world. And I guess, um, you know, my, my pastoral um, theology helps us even in, in terms of selecting those projects and, and um, helping us to decide what, what the KPIs around those projects are and all those sorts of things, yeah. So, so, so in a country where... Plus they, they, I look after a staff of 400 they, people. So, so, you know, I've still got my own congregation. Yeah. They just happen to be scattered around the country. How do you do 
Well, we've, we've got 300 staff in Kurong alone. Bible Society owns Kurong um, bookshops these days. So um, I've got 100 staff in Bible Society, Centre for Public Christianity and Eternity News. They're all Bible Society brands. And with them we've got about 300 in Kurong. And you're about to, uh, the is about to run your... Just did, a couple of weeks okay. ago. So Centre for Public Christianity's new documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined, was on Compass just a couple of weeks ago. I think it's still on iView, but probably only for this week, and then it drops off iView. But if you go to the website, For the Love of God, mm. no, what's it called? No, sorry. The website is betterandworse.com. Thank you, betterandworse.com. And there you'll find um, all of the segments broken up into 8 to 15-minute segments with downloadable resources beside them, absolutely free. If you want to buy the four one-hour episodes, it costs you a couple of bucks wow. American for each one, and you can um, stream those episodes for a couple of bucks. Or you can buy a community screening licence for a couple of hundred dollars and screen it in your local church or in the college or, you know, yeah. What does, and, and you know, society where we've got declining, they say declining church attendance, does yeah. the Bible Society register that in terms of yeah. use yeah. of their resources? It does, yeah. We've just done this mapping exercise, actually, of who we're responsible for in Australia, who who it's our mission to serve. And we, we very much serve Christians who are in the church, but then we then we very much want to reach that 52% who are at least warm to Christianity, even though they might not be in church. But Centre for Public Christianity actually pushes past that again into the passive people, people who say they have no interest but are, um, and, and may even be another religion. Um, so there's a, there's a fair chunk of them. There's about 20 to 30% of them. And then there's the hardcore atheists. And CPX would even want to nudge right against them. So, so um, across our different brands, we map pretty much the whole spectrum in terms of mission to Australian people. But our different brands um, target, you know, their focus is different areas. So classic Bible society is church and um, people who are warm. But those people who are in church tend to fund us, so we, you know, we, we love them because we wouldn't exist without them. But we do want to reach, you know, the masses who are warm to Christianity. So Eternity News, in particular, helps us do that, um, and and also um, Centre for Public Christianity, CPX Resources. But then as we push up into um, and Kurong, of course, Kurong served this this yeah. sector. But as we push up into that you know, um, passive, um, agnostic, atheist, don't care bracket, you know, CPX is pushing against them as well. But again, for the first time, we've recognised that this church audience is really important as um, a funnel, I guess, to help us reach some of that audience because it's, it's people's friends and neighbours and family members, you know, yeah. Right. Well, I, at this stage, I imagine you know more about Samuel than I do. Um, how many weeks in are you? This is week 11. Okay, there you go. But, uh, but for my sake, if not for yours, let me just give you some quick context. Samuel, of course, has served his people as a prophet and a judge well. He's spoken the word of the Lord and he's taught Israel how to live as the people of God 
things that have been entirely forgotten in previous generations. But then, of course, Samuel grows old and Israel's enemies attack and the people demand that Samuel appoint a king. Now, Samuel actually advises the people to trust in God and not in human leadership, but the people don't listen and they're determined to have a king to rule over them and deliver them from their enemies. So God gives them Saul. <coughs> now, although he could have been entirely different, ultimately Saul turns out to be a somewhat selfish, insecure and jealous king who foolishly ignores the word of the Lord and craves the approval of others. He disobeys God, he oversteps his duties and he puts people at odds with God and each other. So God regrets that he's ever made Saul king and he promises a new king who will be a man after his own heart. He'll be a skilled warrior, a musician and a leader who will encourage his people to act like God's people. And most importantly, this newly promised king, David, is a man who trusts in God. Or does he? Now, we just read from chapter 26, a chapter that demonstrates the very best of David. But I want to acknowledge that in the very next chapter, we see the worst. Well, maybe not the worst. Arguably, that might come later with another infamous incident. But if we looked instead at chapter 27 today, we would see quite a different picture of David than we've just read, a man who is discouraged, apparently for no good reason, and who makes really poor decisions <coughs> as a result. And chapter seven, uh, 27 is about someone who loses their way. Now, that could be anyone. It could be any one of us. Someone who, despite the promises of God, but in the presence of difficult circumstances, makes some sad and tragic decisions that make no sense at all. But breathtakingly and beautifully, even this is not as catastrophic as it might be, because in God's economy, there is always the choice of repentance, of return to God and restoration, isn't there? And I'd love to get to that today in chapter 27, um, because it's such an incredible demonstration of God's endless love and grace for us. But we can't do both chapters justice in just 20 minutes. So I'm forcing myself to look at just the best of David. And you can go on and read um, chapter 27 uh, and, uh, and take a look at that uh, whole sorry episode. And also, as you look at that in what I think is the you know, somewhat of the worst of David. Um, have a look at that story of David and Bathsheba later and take that into account. But again, the endless grace and mercy and love of God is mind-blowing and remarkable across David's life. Let me set the scene for our passage. For years, David and his men have been on the run from Saul. Now, this won't have been a fun time. It, it's harsh, inhospitable terrain. It would have been burning hot by day and freezing by night, running, hiding, always trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. And Saul won't give up. He's relentless in pursuit of David. And on this occasion, he and his army of 3,000 plus men have been camping, have been combing the desert for David. Now, at length, he camps on that hillside, and it's there that David and his scouts locate him in the middle of the night. Now, Saul and his army are apparently sleeping. All is peaceful and quiet, and David decides to enter the camp, either an incredibly brave or an insane suicide mission, 
and he and Abishai, who's agreed to accompany David on his recce, head down the hill and enter the camp. There they find Saul and his personal bodyguards asleep, with the king's spear stuck in the ground beside him. And Abishai's plan is clear. God has handed you Saul on a platter. Now let me at him and I won't miss. Now, Abishai argues that God has given David a magnificent opportunity to do unto others before they do unto you. And I think that that's a natural impulse in all of us. And David has at least five good reasons to kill Saul. He has motive, opportunity, he's got a weapon, encouragement and a track record. He's already killed Goliath. Everything is in favour of him doing the dirty deed and then hightailing it out of there. No one would blame him if he did. But he doesn't. And he gives two reasons why not. Firstly, he recognises it wasn't his place to get rid of God's anointed. Even though Saul is a lousy and immoral king by this stage, he is still God's appointed. And it isn't right for David to seek personal revenge against him. And second, it wasn't the right time. His language is, David's language is, his time will come and God will deal with him. David has a faith-filled expectation that God will implement his purpose and his plan and that it's not David's place to intervene. Now, David has been greatly and personally wronged by Saul. But what he knows is a biblical truth. It's not our place to seek revenge. And we can't know when the right time has come. God is perfectly able to take care of righting wrongs, but in his own time and in his own way. Now, it's a very simple theology, really. He's God and we're not. Nothing is more fundamental than this. Once you decide that God is God, you can step back and let him handle things in his own way. It's actually an incredible relief to do that. But if you insist on playing God and seeking revenge yourself, I think you're on your own. I understand it, fund and, but fundamentally it demonstrates a lack of trust in God to take up things in his own divine way and time. Now, David did trust in God and that made all the difference. If we do the same, it changes everything. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We can wait for God to work out his plan. Now, if you think that sounds too nice, let me reassure you by pointing you towards Psalm 69, where David pours out his desire for revenge. I'm reading from verse 19. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. It's not finished yet. Pour your wrath out on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. 
charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. And here's the final cruncher. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Not very nice at all. Smite them, Lord, good and proper. David may have been a man after God's own heart, but he was still a man and very human indeed. Now, there's actually a more gracious approach. Uh, Last week, I was in the old city of Harlem in the Netherlands for an international meeting. And every day on my way to the meeting, I walked past the house where Corrie ten Boom and her family hid Jews behind the family jewellery store during the Second World War. And I imagine you might know that Corrie and her family were ultimately betrayed and taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp and that Corrie was the only one to survive. Her sister Betsy dying just weeks before the end of the war in appalling and shocking surroundings. Now, after she was freed by the Allies, Corrie determined to devote her life to preaching a message of forgiveness. And just two years after the war, Corrie returned to Germany with this message and was shocked to come face to face with one of the Ravensbrück guards. (coughs) He'd been a man who had been particularly cruel to Betsy. And he told her, the guard told Corrie, that he'd become a Christian And he knew that God had forgiven him for the terrible things that he had done. But then he held out his hand and he asked Corey if she would forgive him too. Let me read you Corey's response. I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, But it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it not only as a command of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness isn't an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And of course, Corey did take the man's hand. She declared her forgiveness. And she went on to say that she had never known God's love so intensely as she did in that moment. But years later, Corey added a postscript to her story. Having learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I wish I could say I, had n- and I never had difficulty in forgiving again. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behaviour, but only draw them fresh from God every day. (coughs) Now, interestingly, David's conviction about these same things is quite new. In just the previous chapter, David shows considerably less faithfulness and godly insight when he's insulted by Nabal. 
And on this occasion of being wrong, David sets out with the full intention of killing Nabal, along with the lives of every other male in his household. Now, vengeance is indeed wide-ranging and very sweet. And it's only because of the intervention of Abigail, Nabal's wife, that David backs off. And Abigail, with great wisdom, assures David that he will become the next king and that leaving this sort of payback to God is the best course of action. The gentle wisdom of a woman prevails and, God, and David is convicted and the two part peacefully. But on this occasion, despite Abishai's encouragement to give Saul what he's got coming... David holds firm to his newfound conviction and he refuses Abishai's offer to be Saul's dispatcher. Now, I'm not sure what the timeline for David writing Psalm 109 is, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was about now. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy, it says. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. I have to smile. David has chosen to leave revenge in God's hands in God's time, but he's pretty keen that God get on with it. I find that scripture is at its most used pastorally if I put myself in the story. And I have to admit that I too often feel like speeding the will of God along a little bit. I often feel like jumping in and helping him out, particularly when it comes to dealing with the difficult issues and the difficult people in my life. But Jesus gave us some pretty clear instructions about this, didn't he? Reading from Luke 6, 27 to 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone gives you your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Now, there may not be somebody trying to kill you, but I imagine that you have difficult people in your life too, unless you live a very different one to the one I do. There are people who don't love or like us. Fancy that. (laughs) But Jesus' instructions are clear. So let's go back to the story and, and note just one more detail. David and Abishai leave Saul unharmed. But they take his spear and the water jug as an unmistakable sign that they've been there. And I imagine that Abishai isn't very happy about this being their only spoils for the night. And he was probably muttering under his breath about risking his life for a spear and a lousy water jug. So why this detail? Well, simply this. Rather than being a threat to Saul, 
David has actually been the most faithful defender of his life this night, even more so than Saul's own soldiers. And he takes the sword and the water jug to make this point clear. <coughs> and back on the safety of the ridge, David has a shouting match with Abner, Saul's bodyguard, and he taunts him, you're a lousy bodyguard. Where were you when I was there? You and all you men deserve to die. And the shouting wakes Saul and he and David have a conversation that highlights the stark differences between them. David appeals to Saul and he doesn't understand why Saul has chased him up hill and down dale. It makes no sense. David hasn't done anything to him, yet Saul is hell-bent on taking his life. David is gracious and he says, if it's something I've done and, and God is driving you to this, to, to chasing me down then fine, let me confess and have it done with. And for a moment at least, Saul seems to back off and he says, no, no, David, it's me that sinned. And he implores David to come back down into the camp, maybe so that they can talk about it. Well, what would you do? Would you go back down into the camp under these circumstances? No, I didn't think so. Neither would David. Funnily enough, after being relentlessly pursued for years, he doesn't trust Saul one bit. And he says, you've got to be kidding. Send your lackey to get your sword. But then this, the Lord rewards everyone for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me. The remarkable thing is that despite all that Saul has done to David to make David his enemy, David still loved him and was willing to risk his life to prove it. Amazingly, David values Saul's life as much as his own. Now, in New Testament terms, David was demonstrating the teaching of Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, During the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South Africa, the commission heard a particularly brutal case. A group of white police officers led by Mr Vanderbroek admitted their personal responsibility for the death of an 18-year-old boy. They confessed to shooting him, setting his body on fire and then partying around the fire until the body had been <coughs> reduced to ashes. And then eight years later, the very same officers took the boy's father into captivity and forced the wife and mother to watch while the man was doused with um, petrol and set on fire. And the man's last words to his wife as he died in that fire were, forgive them. Now the time had come for justice to be served and those involved had confessed their guilt. And the commission turned to the mother of the boy, the wife of the man, now an elderly woman. Um, they wanted a final statement from her regarding <coughs> her desire for punishment. And she said, I want three things. She said, I want Mr Vanderbrock to take me to the place where they burned my son's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, 
Mr. Van der Brock took my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Van der Brock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like someone to come now and lead me by the hand to Mr. where Mr. Van der Brock is sitting so that I can embrace him and he can know my forgiveness is real. And I wonder if this explains why there are two stories of David sparing Saul's life within a few chapters. Surely David had two lessons to learn. First, he had to learn to spare his enemies, as he did in chapter 24. But secondly, and most importantly, he had to learn to love them. I valued your life today. How different would all our encounters be if that was the foundation for them all? How different would our world be if we truly desired the full impact of our praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now, loving our enemies is such a hard thing to do, and the truth is most of us would be happier if we didn't have to engage with them at all. Now, regrettably, this story indicates that that option isn't open to us. Loving our enemies means more than putting them at at arm's length or out of sight where they won't bother us anymore. If we're going to love our enemies, we have to take some risks. We have to go down into the camp and lay it on the line. Now, in our context, that might mean making some phone calls and having some conversations that we don't really relish having. It might mean some face-to-face -face confrontations that we'd rather avoid. It will definitely mean some difficult and uncomfortable moments. And to be perfectly frank, I can't guarantee you success because I can't guarantee how your enemies will respond. But I do know that this is what God calls us to. Jesus didn't say, love your enemies as long as they love you back. He simply said, love them in Matthew 5:44. No guarantees, no strings attached. Now, I love that we get to see the gospel in this story. Now, at college, my Old Testament lecturer was constantly telling me not to view the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. Has anyone heard that here? Oh, yay. <laughs> I got into trouble for it so many times but because I can't help myself. Saul, a bitter, angry man represents all of us to some degree. We live to get even. Hatred guides our steps and, and envy robs us of our peace and rots our bones. And when Saul, even when Saul is confronted with this, he can only agree and say, I have sinned. David, though, is a picture of Jesus and when he said, I valued your life today, it sounds a lot like what Jesus said. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But Saul was no friend of David, you say. True. And neither were we when Jesus died for us. Romans 5.10 says, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Here is the wonder of the gospel. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God takes us, his enemies, and makes us his friends. 
And, you know, the words of that song buzz around in my brain. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Still you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Can I pray for us? Lord, may we go forth into the world in peace. May we be of good courage and hold fast to that which is good. May we render to no one evil for evil, but instead may we strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak and help the afflicted. May we truly honour all people, love and serve you and rejoice in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.